Ecclesiastes 5. We're going to get 1 through 9. Let me just go ahead and read and then we'll examine the text closely. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather fear God. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight for one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Just so we are sure we're in the context that we're supposed to be in this text, this is Solomon writing about religious worship. And religious worship at the time was a very structured event. Uh, it, it would have occurred at the temple that uh, he is either in the midst of constructing or the, the temple where it's uh, has been finished at this point. And he's not specifically speaking here to those who are running the worship service as much as he's talking about those of us as we come to worship God. And that was in the days of a sacrificial system where the sacrifices would have to be offered over and over and over again for Christ had not yet come to offer the ultimate sacrifice once and for all and then seated himself at the right hand of the Father. This is before those events. But it's still the same. And and certainly we ourselves then can put ourselves underneath this command to guard our steps as you go to the house of God, as you draw near to to worship God, understand this is the attitude you need to have. And this is couched in this whole context of Ecclesiastes that is speaking about what is the value of this life. And in this case, as you proceed to worship, what is the value and how is it you should attend to your thoughts and your actions? Again, just to build up on the context here, I want us to turn to 1 Samuel 1. I plan my steps, but God is the one who actually causes me to walk in them and has predetermined what I'm going to do. And 1 Samuel is where my, my regular reading is, and the way I do this is I, I have regular reading and then the week that I'm supposed to teach, I switch and my regular reading is the passage that I'm going to be teaching on. And yesterday I was like, well, I think I've re- read through half of Ecclesiastes 5 enough times and have kind of the outline set. I'm going to go back to where I'm regularly reading. And I came to the first book of Samuel. And we won't read through all of this, but in these first four chapters, I just want to review what's taken place here. And you have Eli, 
and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are the priests that are the ones that when you would come to the house of God to worship there in Shiloh, this isn't in Jerusalem yet, God has set up his tabernacle in Shiloh. These are the men that are running worship. And at first, the the character that's introduced is Hannah that's in this setting. And Hannah is there praying to the Lord for a son. Her womb is closed and her husband's other wife has children and she does not. And she is praying that God would, would grant her a child. And Eli, off the, kind of off the cuff, assuming she's drunk, comments about it. She explains what she's doing and he says in 17, go in peace and may God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked him. Kind of like, go away. But sure enough, God has allowed her to conceive. So she ends up and as part of this story, she has promised that if she is given a son, she will give that son to God. She's made a vow that she's going to give up her firstborn son, her only son to God. She names him Samuel because she has asked him of the Lord. And, and then she waits there at the rest of chapter one until the child is weaned before she brings him up to the house of the Lord and hands him over to Eli to be raised and to be given to the Lord. Again, I picture this as waiting for him to be weaned. I'm, I'm thinking he's like six years old before she's ready to give him up. But but who knows how long he's with his, his mother. And then she, she honors the vow she makes and she gives up Samuel to the Lord. And the Lord ends up blessing her and giving her even more sons and daughters. Chapter 2, she has this song of rejoicing of what God has done. And then in chapter 2, verse 12, we see what's actually taking place here in the house of the Lord. The sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. And the custom of the priests uh, with the people, when the man, when any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All of the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus he did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So they're bringing the best of their their flocks and of their herds, giving it to God. And the priests are kind of like the joke I heard is that they take the offering plate into the back and they throw it up in the air and what God wants, he'll keep. And what he (laughs) wants the priest to have, they'll, will come back down to them. And that's kind of what they're doing here. They're putting the best and offering it up to God and then they're, they're randomly sticking the fork into the pot and pulling out for themselves what is not theirs. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest servants would come and say to the, men who was, the man who was sacrificing, give the priest meat for roasting as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. And the man said to him, they must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. And the men despised the offering of the Lord. So just the corruption that's taking place there in the the, uh, worship of God. And then we see that... uh, 
Eli himself there, if we jump down to, to 22, is rebuking his sons for what they are doing. Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to Israel, to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people know, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. There's a lot to unpack in there, and we don't have time for it. This isn't the passage we're in. But Eli himself realizes the wrong that they're doing in the worship of God and and warns them, and they ignore him. But then Eli turns and doesn't actually stop them from what they're doing. And then Samuel continues to grow up within this environment as we continue in chapter 2. And eventually we get, uh, well, the rest of chapter 2 is a promise to Eli of what's going to happen to his sons and to his his, uh, progeny. And then in in chapter 3, we have the call of, of Samuel himself. And the Lord comes and calls Samuel and the Lord says to Samuel, when Samuel finally realizes it's God himself speaking to him, he says to Samuel in verse 11, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel goes and lays down and Eli wakes him up and says, so what did God have to say to you? And knows that Samuel might actually be hesitant to say it, You can tell that Eli himself knows that this is probably not a good thing. He knows what he and his sons have been doing is terrible in the worship of God. And threatens Samuel with everything God promised to do to Eli will happen to Samuel if he doesn't answer him. So Samuel then tells him everything. Then in chapter 4, we have the Philistines, the enemy of Israel in that day, coming and fighting against Israel and Israel gets routed, and so they come back and they decide, well, maybe if God is with us, we'll take the ark with us and we'll go out and we'll fight them. And the ark is taken. One person escapes back there, and, and verse, uh, we'll start in verse 12. Now, a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh that same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat. By the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. He's just reported that the Philistines have routed them and taken the ark. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. 
And he said, how did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there are also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. Then it goes on to explain the rest of the curse that God had placed on Eli back in chapter 2 and how that takes place. So that's, that's the picture of what Solomon... So, so Samuel would have then eventually anointed Saul as king and then David as the successor to Saul. And then David's son Solomon is, is the one writing to us. So Solomon is aware of this story, and he's aware of the importance of, of proper worship of God. And we jump forward to see how important this is. If you turn to Jeremiah 7, look one other place at the importance here of what's probably in the mind of the author of Ecclesiastes. And he makes it a little more clear of, of what's going on. And it isn't just a problem with Eli and, and his sons. They aren't the only ones that are, are worshiping God wrongly. Jeremiah 7, starting verse 1, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien or the orphan or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to run to your own ruin, Then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I give to your fathers forever and ever. So now Jeremiah is prophesying against the people. He's giving them a word directly from God saying, the way you worship and the way you come to God is very important as individuals. And he's going to tie this in verse 14 to what happened in Shiloh. So Shiloh is the story we just read, how God removed the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh and removed the people from their ability to worship Him. And we see that that is now God's threat in chapter 7, verse 7. That you need to amend what you're doing in the way you worship, or I will take it from you. You will not be here. You will not get this privilege of coming to me. I will remove you from the land. That's what's at stake here. When the author of Ecclesiastes says, guard your hearts and your minds, the reason you need to do that is because if you don't, if we don't, God takes all the good that we have from us. Your attitude when you come to worship before God is that important to Him. The people here in Jeremiah's day were saying, well, we're in the temple of the Lord. The temple, this is it. This is everything. God here 
is blessing us because we have come and look what we've done for God. Look what we're doing. We're pre, we're, we make sure the word's preached every Sunday. We've got these great programs that we've set up. We're doing all this work for God. Of course he's going to honor us. We are the people of the Lord. Verse 8, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. You will steal, murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known. Then come and stand before me in my house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, even I, I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. So now we have him saying, you know what? You come here and you do all the right things and you say all the right things and you bring your sacrifices to me and you pray the right prayers. But what are you like the rest of the time when you're not here? What is your attitude? What is your behaviors? What are you watching? What are you listening to? What are you, what are you doing? How are you treating your fellow man? Because that matters. And that quote at the, in verse 11, this house which is called by my name has become a den of robbers in your sight. Who else quoted that? Jesus did. Totally different time, right? It's the next temple. My house is become a den of robbers and thieves and he drives them out now you shouldn't be thinking those jews are really bad you should be thinking another group of people who had the opportunity to know god and experience god and worship god truly have once again done it wrong and you should go oh crap what is the likelihood we could do this wrong and fall into this same thing It matters to God what your heart is like, not only when you are here worshiping Him, but when you're out in the world and how you behave and how you treat others. It mentioned above how you treat the alien, the orphan, the widow. In fact, James says that's true religion. You want to see true religion, see how you treat those people. James, by the way, is kind of... uh, uh, Exposition of Ecclesiastes 5. But go now to my place which was in Shiloh. So now the, the Jeremiah's through, God is telling them through the prophet Jeremiah, you go to Shiloh where I made my, dwell, name, made my name dwell at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because You have done all these things, declares the Lord. And I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house which I called by my name in which you trust, and to the place which I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim, meaning all the people of Israel. Sorry about that. So it matters to God. It matters a lot to God. 
when you come to Him to worship. Not only guarding your hearts, but also guarding your behavior throughout the week, throughout your life. The rest of it's important as well. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes 5 now. Kind of read this anew. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. How many of you, as you prepare to come to worship God, are like, okay, I need to be on my guard today? I mean, is that, it's not natural for us, is it? We're like, I'm going to go and enjoy what I get to do at church today. I'm going to get to sing. We're going to pray. We're going to, we're going to hear the word of God. What do you mean be on my guard? I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And yet that's the command we're given here. Be on your guard. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. And we're like, okay, we're doing that right because 99% of the time I'm there, I'm just listening. And certainly there's some encouragement to those of us who, who do open our mouths a lot here. Those of us who, who, who teach those of us who, who lead our children, it's the job of all of you to say, yay or nay, that was good, that was bad. Hey, what, are you sure you should have said that? Are you sure that's what we're supposed to be doing? Are you sure we shouldn't take that a little more seriously? That's your guys' role, to make sure you're keeping us in line as well through your encouragement and your admonitions. Because we're leading you in a path that you want to be sure that the path that you are walking in is right. That we're not offering the sacrifice of fools. And there's a, there's a stern warning there that I think we pass over. For they do not know they are doing evil. Understand, you could be doing poorly and not even realize it. Your ignorance is not an excuse. And he goes on to explain it a little more fully. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. When do you guys use words? When do things come from your mouth when you're in worship? When you're singing, right? That's where most of it, well, those of you who sing, some of you drink coffee during the songs. And, oh, well, I can't change that. Um, and maybe that's better. Maybe it's better that you're not offering things that aren't real in your heart. But as you offer up those words, how many of you think about what you're actually singing? How many of you have ever said, I don't know that that's in the Bible. I don't know that that's true. But that's your role. You should be on guard. That's part of being on guard. I think we do a pretty good job of, of selecting the songs that you sing, but not always. Some of them have some things in there that are interesting. Pay attention to that. That's, that's what you're being told to do here. Be on your guard. Why? Because God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. It should scare you to say things in church and in worship. It should scare you to speak things of God. Let's look back at Job 40.
So Job 40. Oh, verse 3. God, God up to this point is actually talking directly to Job. Job, as you remember when we studied that, we walked through and all these terrible things happened to Job. And Job is, is crying out because he didn't deserve it. it. It isn't what's right. His behavior did not measure up to the... the what he felt he was being punished for. The punishment far outweighed, it, outweighed any crime that he could lay his fingers on and say, okay, I understand why God did this to me because I did this. That wasn't there for him. And God goes through and explains to Job exactly who he is and what he's done, the things he's made, the fact that he holds this whole earth together. He is the one that everything works out the way it's supposed to work out because God is in heaven, Job, and you are on earth. And here is Job's response. Then Job answered the Lord, uh, chapter 40, verse 3, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. And God doesn't say, oh, Job, you're being too hard on yourself. No, he says, Job, God, and then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. God carries on with it. We won't go through it all, but God makes sure that Job understands that if you're going to bring a matter to me, if you're going to cry out to me and say, God, it is not fair. Understand that I am in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And Job goes, done. I'm done talking. I get it. I now get it. That should make you think. If you, if you have been struck by the hand of God and, and had adversity brought upon you, I think you get this a lot better. Because we are really bad at asking for what the right thing should be. We don't know. You don't know what the best thing in your life will be. You have no idea. You should be really careful what you ask for. For what you ask for, if you're given it, may actually cause you to sin. You don't know. Be careful when you come. We have this access through our high priest who is Christ himself who sits at the right hand of the Father where we don't have to come through this sacrificial system in order to come into the presence of God and ask for things. We actually have direct access now through our mediator who is both God and man. And in light of that, your prayers should look like you don't know for sure what to ask for. You know, it's interesting. If we turn over to Luke 11... Jesus gets it, right? When he was teaching the disciples, Luke 11, 1, and it happened while Jesus was praying in a certain place after he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. So understand the context here is Jesus has not gone to the cross and he's going to lay out for them the idea that you can go directly to God and pray. He is going to set it up that he is their mediator and they now have access into the Holy of Holies, into the most precious part of the sanctuary, and actually petition the Lord. And he says, this is how you should do that. 
He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive our sins for we also for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Done. Isn't it interesting? And and we sometimes want to take that and turn it into a template that we can make a two-page prayer out of. And I think part of this is the simplicity of what it's supposed to be so that you don't say and ask for things that are outside of your purview and your control. Instead, everything is, God, you're in heaven. Whatever you're carrying out, I pray it happens. That's a safe prayer, by the way. That's going to come true. God's going to answer that prayer. He's going to hollow his name. His kingdom's going to come. Give us what I need. Give us what we need for daily sustenance, which is not only not only the food we need, but your word, the word of God. We don't live by bread alone, but by the word of God. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone else who is indebted to us. It's that whole, again, looking around you and seeing those who are in dire straits who need help and treating them well. And Lord, lead us not into temptation. Understand that we ourselves do things that foolish people do without even recognizing that what we're doing is foolish. Lord, keep us from those situations. Done. And then Jesus goes on. If we were to read on, he talks about the fact that you don't have to sit there and ask God over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's not like you're trying to wear the man out so that he'll finally give you what you want. Just ask. If you ask for those things that he tells you to ask for, he'll give them to you. And he is the God who gives good things to his children. So back in in Ecclesiastes 5 then, so don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Whether we're here worshiping or you're, you're home praying to God, be careful. Keep things simple. Ask for the things that God has promised you. Because he's in heaven and you're on earth and you can't see everything and you don't understand, nor will you understand everything that takes place in this world. And then there's this interesting comment there in verse 3, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. And that uh, verse still troubles me exactly what it means. Um, But dream there is not dream as like, I have a dream that I can accomplish this and this this goal of mine that takes all this effort and everything is this dream. It's more uh, those who pursue things through much effort and activity sleep well and dream dreams. It's something that's taking place in sleep. That word in the original languages would have meant uh, the, the thing that comes with sleep happens after much effort. The voice of a fool through many words. So basically, through all your effort, you're given dreams, which aren't even real, and using a bunch of words actually gives you evidence that you yourself are a fool. So being super active in your, in your religious endeavors, as well as being super wordy in your li- religious endeavors, aren't necessarily a sign that you're doing good. In verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. 
For he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. And that should put a stop to a lot of the things like, oh God, if you, if you grant me this, I'll do this for you. There's a danger there. Understand that God expects it from you. Understand just as, as Samuel's mother <clears throat> made a vow to God, the expectation is that she'd pay, and she did. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we do do this somewhat, don't we? We see this, and I, I beat this, this story up all the time. The, does anyone familiar with growing kids God's way? Okay. So it's an old, an old process that uh, a couple came, the Enzos? Ezos. Yeah, Enzos built Ferraris. <laughs> Ezos. <laughs> the Ezos. Um, came up with this system. This is how you raise your children, and you follow all these steps, and you do all these things, and you'll raise great kids. I got, a, I got news for you guys. You do all those things, and your kids can still rebel and be bad children and bring you heartache and pain. Doesn't, so why do you do all those things? Well, you do all those things because you look and say, does this bring glory to God? Yes, it does, and I'll do it, and God will take care of the outcomes for sure. But all too often, we're like, okay, God, if, if we do X, Y, or Z, the expectation will be that we get blessed by you because we did what you said you'd do. If we preach the word here on Sunday mornings faithfully, then you'll cause us to grow because it's not done very often anymore around here. So the expectation, Lord, is if we do what you expect us to, you're going to cause us to grow. Did you know that God takes churches that do things really, really badly and causes them to grow? I don't know if you guys have ever heard of such a thing, but it happens. Most of the what we call mega churches in this country today do things really badly. So growth is not an indication that you're doing things right, nor is it the expectation of what God will give you in repayment of your vow to do what is right. So why do you do what is right? You do what is right because the Lord requires it of you and, it's, and you let Him take care of the rest. But we do make vows to God. We do say, okay, if we raise our children in this way, if we teach Sunday school in this way, if we preach this way, if we sing these songs, this is what God, the expectation will be that God repays to us. So be careful when you make vows to God. Because then God might actually still require it of you. And if your heart isn't right and your actions even outside of your religious worship isn't right, you're not fulfilling your vow to God and he will, he will punish for that as well. Do not let your speech cause you to sin and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. In other words, I, I know we said we'd do this, Lord, but we're going to undo it. Um, our mistake. Sorry. Um, God's response there is, is clear. God will become angry on account of your voices and destroy the work of your hands. For many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. And I've seen people do that. I've seen people in churches do that where they say, we're going to take a stand on women and women shouldn't preach. And then they'll turn around, they, we're strong on that, we're great on that, and they'll turn around and they'll have a special um, seminar, family retreat, and the woman and man 
husband and wife team will get up and teach on Sunday morning from the pulpit. And it's like, well, didn't you vow to God that you were going to be faithful to his word and not allow that? Well, but it's only one Sunday, only one Sunday a year that we do that. So be careful what you vow. God will require it of you. And again, we have that repetition of the tying of, of many dreams, which is tied to much activity, and the many words, which is tied to foolishness. There is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Isn't that a simple, a simple command? Just fear God. That's all you have to do. Give Him the reverence and understanding that everything good we have here, and we have a lot good here at Providence Bible, Everything good we have here was granted by him and is because of him, not because of anything we do. And it could all be taken away from us. Don't think for one minute that, that the preaching of the word and getting to hear God's word exposited to you so that you can understand it, so that it can, it can impact your life is something that God owes you for your good behavior. It isn't. Fear God. He's the one, look what he did in Shiloh. Look what he did to the people even in the second temple. Look what he did, or the first temple. Look what he did to the second temple in Jerusalem when Jesus came and cleaned it out. Look at all the churches mentioned in Revelation, the seven churches, and go and look at them today. Fear God. The way you draw near to the house of God to worship should be with an attitude of fear, reverence. You should be guarding your steps, guarding your steps against what might be out there and what could, could affect you. No, guard your steps against your own heart. Wonder whether or not, do I really fear God? Am I really concerned about God? And then finally here, these last two verses seem kind of, there, there seems to be a, a message from Solomon about worship and then, and then these two verses and then a message about riches and seeking money. And in between, he had this, this little point he wanted to make about government. And it seems to have no, no way to fit into this, this line of thinking. But you need to understand that what took place in the temple during Solomon's day, as we showed, was actually uh, tied to the government there was no king in Israel at the time of Shiloh. And even the king in Israel at the time of Solomon was, was deeply ingrained with what happened in the temple structure, what happened in the temple uh, activities. And so, just as we saw in Eli's sons, there was oppression of the poor, denial of justice. They were taking people's best of their produce and taking it and stealing the best for themselves from these people. They were taking the servants of the Lord who worked in the temple structure and taking them as their own wives or concubines or worse. They were oppressing the people. So if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. And the other part of this, well... We'll jump back to that. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. He says, look, don't be, don't be surprised when bad things are happening because just like in the days of Eli, Eli overwatched his sons 
who overwatched the people beneath them, and they were allowing all these things to happen. Don't think just because you have a great structure in place that none of these things will be taking place. Because all those levels of justice can be perverted. We take great pride in our country that we have separation of powers. We have three branches of the government that, are, that exercise oversight over one another. And boy, they do a great job of that, don't they? Each branch does exactly what they're supposed to do in exercising their authority over the other branches, and they do so with, with um, justice and honor. No, it doesn't happen. Contrast that with a king who cultivates the field as an advantage to the land. A king who actually is taking care of the people in the land that he has rather than trying to rob it of all its resources, either of people or wealth or produce. But back up there, if you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked. Do not be surprised when people start coming to God without guarding their steps and they're worshiping in a way that does not bring honor to God, but instead is self-focused, is instead promising things to God, but instead turning their back on what they've promised that, that they would give God or promising to do, do worship in a certain way and not actually carrying that out. Don't be shocked if in the land then that you see a denial of justice and righteousness. Turn over to James, and we'll, we'll end in James. James 1. <clears throat> Down in 26 and 27. This, this gets to that whole guarding your heart, guarding your words. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Guard your tongues, guard your activity. When you come to worship God, it's not just what happens there, it's what happens outside of there. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and our Father is, to, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. And then James goes on to explain how that all works out, that, that your faith is not separated, your religious worship is not separated from your activities and your actions, right? Faith without works is dead. Verse 17. So don't, don't be surprised when you see the worship of God and how you come to the presence of God as a corporate body, as we do every Sunday morning, how you carry that about and the, the attention to detail that you pay to yourself and the encouragement you give those around you. Having that reverent attitude where you're actually fearing God is how you should come. If that falls apart, don't be surprised if in the land you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness. Don't think for one second that those things aren't tied together, that God hasn't linked linked those things closely. But it starts here with your heart. It starts with how you come to the house of God. Draw near to listen. Don't be someone who doesn't even realize the evil that they're involved in. 
Don't be hasty with your words. Understand God is in heaven and you are on earth. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word and we thank you that each one of us has the ability to look into our own hearts and see what we should do. But Lord, we're blinded to the sin in our own lives. Lord, grant us the ability to bring you honor and glory for we are unable to do so on our own. Lord, and that glory and honor for you is our ultimate goal and nothing else. Amen.